What does it look like to believe in a good God in times like these? And the central verse of Habakkuk, which we will get to in a few weeks, is chapter 2, verse 4. And he kind of says what it is that it looks like. He says, the righteous shall live by his faith. We live in the midst of our troubles by faith. But of course, that leads us to maybe an even more difficult question. What is faith? And what does it look like to practice faith in times like this? And that's where Habakkuk shines. He asks us some very uncomfortable questions about faith and about God's own faithfulness to us. Hear this warning on the outset. Habakkuk is going to challenge you. Probably today, but definitely as we work through the next couple of passages. But it's a challenge that we need to hear. Habakkuk, as a, as a book, is written in a very unique format. Um, it's Hebrew poetry. It's very similar to the Psalms. In fact, you could make the argument that the best rubric for reading and understanding Habakkuk are the Psalms themselves, particularly the Lament Psalms. But what happens throughout this, this short book is Habakkuk makes a complaint to God about the brokenness of his world. And then God responds to him. And then after God's very unexpected response, Habakkuk complains again. And then he waits for a response. And then after some time, God responds with a second response. I'm not going to spoil the plot about what these are. And then it ends with this big, surprising prayer from Habakkuk. We're going to walk through each of these scenes together each week. But today we're, in, we're looking at Habakkuk's first complaint. And this is the heart of what is being addressed here. In this complaint, we see a good overall picture of this question, what does it look like to live in faith when you're troubled? When your world is broken, when you experience pain after pain after pain? Well, here's the first challenging answer right off the bat. What it looks like to live faithfully in trouble is to cry out. And it looks a lot like complaining. It looks a lot like complaining. You can read this first section of, of Habakkuk, and I love the tone that Karin read it in. You can read it as this, like, ridiculously upstart complaint to God. Like, what a whiner. But there's nuance to Habakkuk's cry, and it's very important for us to look at why he cries out but also to look at who he cries out about or what he cries out about and who he cries out against. 
And this shows us something about what faith looks like. We've been talking about lament a little bit this morning. So one of the problems about writing a sermon series and doing putting the liturgy together side by side is if you're really astute, you'll probably be able to get to the point of my sermon before we even get there for the next six weeks. But we've been trying to lament this morning a little bit. Um, Within the context of the Old Testament, this is a very normal thing. It's kind of funny, though for us, we struggle with it. Lament feels whiny. It just does. It feels weak. Honestly, it feels a little faithless. But it's all over Scripture. So Habakkuk is written in, in the structure of the Psalms. It's a lament psalm, at least his language is. Of the 150 psalms that we have, you know, you can debate by a couple of numbers, but 63 of them are classified as lament psalms. 63. Praise psalms only number around 65, so they barely edge out the lament psalms. And if you read it beginning to end, you're going to be depressed before you get halfway through because it's almost all lament at the beginning. But it's not just the Psalms, it's all over the Old Testament. I mean, Job, we have a book called Lamentations. And then in the New Testament, these laments are taken up by Jesus himself. As uncomfortable as we are loudly crying out with our own how longs, our own where is your love, God? This was the regular practice of the people of God throughout the scriptures. Openly, honestly, bringing their troubles to God. In fact, lament was seen as a right of the covenant people. I would argue that lament is more than a right. It's actually a covenant responsibility. This is why we see the covenant name of God in our laments. And we struggle with this in our Bible a little bit. I brought this up before, but I'll always bring it back up. Whenever you see those all caps, Lord, that's not Lord. That's this thing that's happened throughout the history of Scripture. We could get into it. Um... But in the Hebrew, this is the name of God. It is Yahweh. Not just the name of God, but the name of God that God gives his people in the covenant. And so whenever we see these lament psalms, we see not just, you know, hey, God, what's going on? We see Yahweh, how long? Habakkuk is aware that as the people of God, Israel has the right and the responsibility to call out to their father, to invoke his name, and complain. See, we feel that crying out, the complaining, that screaming to the heavens is weak and faithless, 
We should just respect what he's doing. We should understand that he's got it covered. Our proper response should be, yeah, it's tough, but I can't complain. You know, God's in control. But in the presence of the regularity of lament in Scripture, we have to be we have to be honest, that's not faithful at all. What is faithful to do is to name our trouble, to say, God, you say that we can bring our troubles to you, and you made promises to restore and to bless us, but my world is messed up. What is going on? And if that seems faithless, let me say this as clearly as I can. That takes real faith. To cry out honestly and openly to that holy and powerful God of the universe. And trust that he will hear you. And this is what Habakkuk does. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help? O Yahweh, how long shall I cry for help? And you will not hear or cry violence, and you will not save. He uses the name of God, and he names the violence that he sees. And violence is a tricky word here, particularly because he uses it twice in two places in an entirely different way. Poetry's fun like that. But here, it's a general term. It's representing all of the trouble that he sees around him. One commentator translates lawlessness. This goes along with, he sees this big courtroom drama playing out. Another uh, commentator translates it as the outcry of the oppressed. This general outcry. However we translate it, what he's doing here is he's naming all of the troubles of his day. This big basket statement. We might say, brokenness. We might say evil. We might, if we're being tongue-in-cheek or posting a meme on the internet, say this dumpster fire of a world that we live in. But it all represents the same thing. Habakkuk says, look at this world, God. It is a mess. But it's important to understand not just that he cries out and that that is faithful, But what he complains about here is actually anything but vague. What he names is important. Because in our responsibility to lament, we're to name our troubles, to be honest and specific about them. If we get to the point of crying out, if we get there. Usually we just say, like, I hate to bug you, God, but things are kind of hard right now. You know what I mean? (laughs) But that's not what lament looks like. Real lament is a part of the real relationship that we have with God in the covenant. And it looks like this kind of honest naming of our complaints that, like, we don't do this with anyone. We don't do this with our friends, we don't do this with our spouses. Maybe we do it with our cat after a glass of wine. But certainly not God.
Maybe we feel overwhelmed and we don't want the vulnerability of naming these things because that's too painful. Or maybe we feel like our troubles are, are kind of petty and bothering God with them specifically will make us look weak. Listen, I don't care who you are. You are a human living in a broken world and the effects of the fall are all around you. And they're deep inside you. No matter who you are, one, you are experiencing troubles and they are overwhelming, full stop. To deny this is either to foolishly deny what sin is or to pridefully deny that it has an effect on you. You do. You're a broken human living in a broken world. You are overwhelmed. But second, no matter who you are, you're also weak. Get over it. Even the small things can break you. God knows this. He doesn't care. He's not going to say, hey, man, people over here got way worse going on. Don't bother me. It's not what he does. He has called you to lament your troubles. He has called you to name the things that are breaking you and that are broken around you and that are broken inside you. And this looks like the specifics that Habakkuk engages in. This is pretty cool. In this poetic cry, we see a holistic picture of trouble. He presents the difficulties of his world in these three pairs of descriptive words. Each one of these sets, I think, is, is kind of a blanket. It's two ends of a spectrum of brokenness, if you will. First, he names iniquity and, and wrong in our translation. This pair of Hebrew words have a lot of depth, making them really fun to translate. Different commentators often different ways to read them. But it boils down to this. Habakkuk is naming an evil that is perpetrated and an evil that is experienced. He's crying out about those who do evil and injustice and those who are harmed by evil and injustice. God, this is what has been done in my world and this is who has been harmed by it. And then he names destruction and violence. And in this pairing, what we see is harm in its fullness. Harm done by impersonal forces and harm that's done by individuals. In one word, we see sickness and famine and disaster and war. And in the other word, we see violence and abuse. God, we have been greatly harmed by the world that we live in and by the hand of our neighbor. And then Habakkuk names strife and contention. These two are a little bit more difficult, but they're best understood, I believe, is this crumbling of our relationships with one another. One of them is larger. It's on the institutional or systemic level. And the other one is more personal. It's more relational. The failure of our systems, our political, legal, economic systems, oppression and division, and the failure of our relationships, our marriages, our families, our friendships, hatred and heartbreak. 
God, our connection with one another has broken apart. Our society has crumbled and our relationships have died. And then Habakkuk goes on in verse 4 to name the failure of the law and justice. And both of these require a little bit of parsing out. Law is a really tricky word in Scripture. The Hebrew is Torah. And there's kind of three basic uses that we use this for. The first is the Levitical law, right? The do's and don'ts of the Old Testament. This is usually what we see, what we think of when we see the word law. Unfortunately, it's not usually what's being talked about. The second is the first five books of the Old Testament. The Hebrew Bible is broken up into what we translate in English as the law, the prophets, and the writing. And the law are those first five books. The third is all of the teaching of God. Torah itself is translated directly as instruction. We call the first part of the Hebrew Bible the Torah because it represents God's teaching to his people at Sinai. This is what we usually see when Torah is used, particularly in the Old Testament Psalms and prophets. It includes the Levitical law. That's a part of his teaching. It includes those first five books of scripture, that is where his teaching was communicated most directly to his people, but it's much greater than either of those things. And this third use is what Habakkuk is talking about. The law of God was to instruct and guide his people. It should result in the righteousness and justice and peace of God's kingdom. This is what he says is paralyzed. Justice is a little bit more straightforward, but it has two facets to it as well. The Hebrew word is mishpat, if you were interested. Justice concerns the right, fair, and generous treatment of other people. That's what it is. Especially when it comes to how those with agency or resources treat those who don't have agency or resources. It's promoting the well-being of others, and in the Old Testament, in that Levitical law, it's most often expressed in requirements to care for the poor, the alien, the widow, and the orphan. Because of this, injustice is seen in, in oppression and neglect and marginalization and exploitation. That's what injustice is. So we do justice by making sure that the needs of others are met and the dignity of others is protected. That's what justice is. But justice also takes the form of this assuring of justice. Making sure that people who are called to justice do justice. This is the way nations were called to justice. And it meant punishing injustice. So this is what Habakkuk's verse 4 complaint boils down to. The claim that Torah and Mishpat are absent in the world. The instruction of God which produces righteous and just people is not happening. And the justice of God which protects the oppressed and punishes the oppressor is not happening. 
And he concludes that because the wicked have prevailed and surrounded the righteous, because God's law and justice have been silenced, the world experiences justice in a form that is perverted. A worldly, corrupt, and incomplete teaching and justice that perpetuates the trouble of the day. Oh God, your ways are not taught or practiced, so our trouble is compounded. This, while Habakkuk states it very concisely because it's, po- it's poetry, is very de- it's a very detailed picture of Habakkuk's lament. He names it all. Here's everything that's going on in our world. It's probably a lament we can relate to. We could name a lot of those things in our own world. But how often do we lift them up specifically in cries to our Father? There are real wrongs, real violences, real contentions in our lives, specific ways that you and I have been mistreated or harmed or grieved or heartbroken. And we should name them. In fact, we must. The third thing that we have to look at here is not just how specific Habakkuk is, but also who he's, or what he's accusing. There's an accusation in this outcry. And I warn you, this is where we're going to get really uncomfortable this morning. There's three possible directions for Habakkuk's anger, frustration, lament. I'll spoil the plot a little bit. I think it's a little bit of all three that we should take away from this. But the first possible direction is outward. And some of the question of this lies in what situation Habakkuk is in. Um, Doing the historical background on Habakkuk is tricky. We actually don't even know how to pronounce Habakkuk. One one preacher said Habakkuk is an Akkadian uh, loner word, whatever that means. But, but naming him and placing him and, and figuring out what's going on is actually quite tricky. We know it's probably before Babylon. There's this weird reference to another Habakkuk in the apocryphal writing, but that doesn't help us at all. Some, many commentators place him closely after the reign of Josiah. It's a good guess, but it's hard to pin down. But what the, why the, that question is important is we want to ask ourselves, who is he talking about? Like, which evil group is he saying is so terrible? Is it the Assyrians? Is it the Babylonians? Maybe it's one of those other foes of Israel, like the Egyptians. If it's any of these, then what we see is Habakkuk sitting here looking outside of Israel and naming the evils of the world and lamenting the way that they are wicked and how they have oppressed Israel. Listen, I'm pretty confident that that's not what Habakkuk is doing. But I do want to pause here for a moment. Is there a time to lament the troubles out there? Sure. 
our concerns, our frustrations, our hurts, we should bring them to God regardless of where they come from. These things are lamentable. So there is an outward component of laments. But it's pretty clear that Habakkuk's focus is not outside, but on the community of Israel itself. I mean, why even bring Torah up if you're not talking about Israel? Assyria doesn't care about Torah. Babylon doesn't care about Torah. Israel's supposed to. (laughs) It's the people of God who Habakkuk is complaining about. And we need to see this, that in Habakkuk, actually in most of Scripture, the people of God perpetrate trouble as often as anyone else does. Habakkuk's lament is far more inward than it is outward. It was to the very people who should be instructed by Torah and should be doing justice. It was these people who were responsible for the terrible evils that Habakkuk is in distress over. And brothers and sisters, we have to hear this. Lament is appropriate in the face of evil and brokenness. But if we look outward, we also have to look inward. If we lament about what's happening there, we also have to repent of what's happening here. Israel was guilty of these atrocities. And any moral line that we want to draw in our hermeneutics between the Old Testament people of God and the New Testament people of God in terms of morality, you just can't do that. It's inappropriate and it's dangerous. Because we, you and I, sitting on this side of Jesus Christ, are just as capable and culpable of evil. We have perpetrated as much injustice as we have had perpetrated on us. We are as much those who do evil and injustice as those who are harmed by it. We have paralyzed Torah. We have perverted mishpat justice. And as we cry out, oh God, how long will you allow this evil and this injustice to continue? We must also cry out, how long, oh God, will you allow this evil and injustice in us to continue? It's uncomfortable but it's going to get worse. There's actually a third direction that lament is directed here. If you pay attention to the language of Habakkuk's cry, you'll see that this third direction is the primary direction of this lament. Notice that while the wickedness of Israel is the content of his accusation, he blames someone else. Who does he blame? Oh, Yahweh, How long will you not hear? How long will you not save? How long will your Torah wait? How long will your justice wait? Habakkuk is aware of how wicked his enemies are. He's aware of how Israel is just as wicked, but ultimately, 
the one he accuses, the one he blames, is God. He accuses him of of inaction. He accuses him of silence. He accuses him of neglecting his promises. He basically accuses him of sitting transcendent outside of the horror of Habakkuk's world, looking on with indifference. Are all you good churchgoers uncomfortable now? Listen, we're going to dig deep into that upward direction of Habakkuk's complaints. We're actually going to spend a week each on God's uncomfortable and incomplete justice, on God's silence, that one's going to be fun, and on our own outrage and disbelief. So if you're uncomfortable now, buckle up. It's going to get way worse. But if you're uncomfortable now, you probably need to hear it. For now, what we need to see and understand and wrestle with is the fact that the lament of Habakkuk, our faithful prophet here, is not only outward and inward, it is upward. And as hard as it is for us respectable church folks to swallow, this is exactly what scripture is telling us that our faith in the midst of trouble looks like. It is. Habakkuk is exercising faith in his accusations to God. He's exercising faith in his accusations to God. Because in his faith, he trusts God enough. He trusts the relationship that he has with God enough to be honest in how he assesses the problem. Because in his faith, he knows where to address this complaint, not to the world, not to Israel, but to the one who, one, has promised to do something about it. This is what the covenant has been from the very beginning. God saying to his people, I'm going to fix this. He promised that he would make his people great, He would make them a holy people, a just and righteous people. So why wouldn't he address it to God? But also he addresses it to the only one who can do anything about it. This is why we're called to lament. We can rage against the devil all we like. We can rage against the world all we like. We can even rage against our flesh all we like but it doesn't do anything. It doesn't accomplish what we want to accomplish. Sure, for a side note, there's a prophetic role that the church plays to name evil. But we also have to understand a couple things. First, the prophetic role is kind of a unique role and a specific one. Theologically, if I really want to get into it here, that's kind of what I'm doing right now. That's where it usually happens. But second, no one ever listens to the prophets. Read the Old Testament. It's so rare. (laughs) It's just 
ridiculous. God's continually sending these men out with messages, and the people are like, no. And then, to get really complicated, because of this whole mess, because of the fact that we are broken people as well, any justice, any truth that's inspired in the hearts of the wicked, that includes us, is generally partial at best. It's that perverted justice that we see in verse 4, and we're going to really dig into that in our next section. But in addressing our frustration to God, a God who has the ability to do good, so much that he can even work good in us, and a God who has promised to do so, a God who has promised not to stand by sitting transcendent outside of the mess, but to incline his ear and hear us, and then to do something about it, to actually come down from that transcendent place, to be incarnate in Jesus Christ, to take our lament and take it to the cross, to defeat evil and injustice once and for all. This is who we should bring our complaints to. See, the problem of history or the problem of evil is presented as this great argument against a good God, as an argument against faith. But here's the funny little thing. That question, how can a good God stand in the face of evil, particularly if we address it to him? God, if you are so good, how can you stand in the face of evil? That is a very faithful question. It confesses that God hears us. It confesses that he might care about the things that trouble us. It confesses that he can save us. And it confesses that he, transcendent God, has submitted himself to the responsibility to do so in the covenant that he has made with us. So how can we possibly live by faith when we are troubled? (laughs) Partially by asking that very question. God, how long? How can you stand there when our world is like this? And waiting to hear how he answers us. But very briefly, because first sermons always take a while. I should have stopped at verse 4. Verse 5 is not a part of this section. And just having verse 5 in there is really cheap. Because it looks nothing like what comes after it. But Habakkuk is so unique in being both a psalm and a prophetic writing, because usually when we read a lament, we just have the lament, right? They lament and they sit there in silence. That's it. And that's important. We need that, and we're going to get there. But Habakkuk records God's answer. That's really special. This is a misdirect from next week. Next week, we're going to hear all of God's answer, and we're going to be really bothered by it. But I want us just to look at the beginning of it today. 
Because he starts with what we should expect from God. If we lament, what do we do? We look, we see, we wonder, we are astounded for God is doing a work. That work looked very different to Habakkuk than he expected. And honestly, while this is incredibly different from the Chaldean answer that we're going to get next week, Jesus' work to respond to this lament and all of our laments looks very different than we imagine too, doesn't it? God accepting and placing the blame that we put on him that he doesn't deserve. Putting it on himself. Taking that blame to the cross and paying for it in his own blood. So that we, the wicked ones named in this complaint, might be redeemed and restored. So that this broken world that seems too gone might be redeemed and restored. That is a work that we would not believe if we were told. But if you come to know Jesus Christ, you haven't just been told it, you've seen it. And so we can know and we can have faith and we can cry out, God, how long will you allow this trouble and know that he answers, I am doing a work. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we do cry out to you. We do look at our world around us, we look at our neighbors, we look at our families, we look at ourselves, and we see a brokenness that does not seem to be compatible with the promises that you have made to us. And so we cry out, how long? How long until you take this burden away from us forever? Before you dry our tears, before you heal our wounds, before you make all things new. We do pray, God, that you would do that work and do it soon. Come quickly. But in the meantime, give us the faith to cry out to you. Give us the faith to name our troubles. To lay them at your feet because you have promised to take them from us. Amen.